Welcome to the show. Yes, thank you for having me. It's good to be back. Good 2021, you know, getting up in here. Um, yes, <laughs> it is It is very good. Welcome to Appleosophy Weekly. It's a new show for 2021. This is my first show as official host of Appleosophy Weekly. Uh, my name is Brom Shank. You can find me on Instagram at the official Brahmi. That's the official B-R-A-H-M-Y. Um, that's on Instagram. And then on Twitter, you can find me just at my name, Brahm Shank, B-R-A-H-M-S-H-A-N-K. Let us know where they can find you, Chris. Um, well, you can find me on uh, on Instagram through Appleosophy. If you just search under the followers tab, you'll see AppleManPS3. So that's A-P-P-L-E underscore M-A-N-P-S-3. But then you can also find me on the Appleosophy Instagram account as per usual. Excellent. So I want to get started today. Now, you're the CEO and founder of Appleosophy Media Group, correct? Give us a little bit of an idea of what you do day to day. Tell us what you're all about, Chris. I mean, it's mostly, um, you know, now now that we've set up Appleosophy since 2015, Halder and I have been, you know, really working hard on getting something which kind of has the most autonomous flow. Um, and so, you know, m- my kind of day-to-day operations now are mostly advising and helping people out with certain tasks um, and then having meetings with, with Halden and trying to, um, you know, formulate new ideas and uh, see how we can implement them into the business. Um, but it used to be really involved with, um, you know, doing website posts and Instagram yeah. posts and everything like that. But now it's a lot more laid back, especially as um, Appleosophy Media has uh, grown and expanded, especially with uh, you, Definitely. you now. Within doing... the last five years, we, we've seen astronomical growth of the Appleosophy platform. And, and that's why I'm thrilled to be a part of it. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, because you're the you're the podcast host now. So, you know, congratulations <laughs> on your promotion there. He was one of our editors now. Um, and so this is kind of a, the next step for him, especially uh, with his kind of media skill and uh, the next OS. big thing. Exactly. The next, one, yes. the next big one more thing, Chris. Yes. Yes. And so um, <laughs> it's something which, you know, if you guys make Brom feel welcome, uh, you know, then, That'll be really good because he's a good podcast host. He's, uh, you know, very intellectual, well, and I think he's got a lot to bring. Well, I thank you for that, Chris. And I'll tell you what, we're really excited about the show this year. Um, we're going beyond just Apple News. So this is a show for everyone, um, young and old. <laughs> we're we're going to be talking about not only just the news, we'll be covering the news, but we'll also talk about how the products are being used in new and innovative ways um, from creative pros, from an accessibility perspective, we're going to be talking to users from all around the world and asking them how these products have changed their lives. And that's why we do this. That's why we call it Appleosophy, because it's really that philosophy of Apple, that idea of thinking differently, and that idea of how we use the products in our lives. And I'm really passionate about that. And I hope that by doing this podcast, people can listen to this and gain an understanding of, of, of something that they maybe quite didn't understand before. That, that we can break it down into pieces and, and, and really 
make technology more accessible and, and, and keep technology where it's supposed to be, which as Steve Jobs used to say at the center of, of the arts. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm really and passionate I, about them. Yes. And, and I am too. And I mean, uh, for, for those of you listening right now, um, I think it would be um, a huge, huge um, kind of part of, um, of us to, to ask this, but if you have, you know, a friend or, uh, you know, like a YouTuber that you're subscribed to or something like that. And you yeah. think that they have something unique to offer or that they're doing something that no one else is doing. Definitely have them contact us using the contact page on philosophy.com. Uh, because, definitely. you know, we're, we've got some good people lined up as guests. Uh, Brom, if you want to go into a little bit more detail about that. Yeah, we have some great people lined up as guests. We have uh, McGuire from Twitter. You might know him as Jiroku. hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, he's a top leaker in the Apple community right now. We'll be having some editors coming on from Appleosophy. Some of my close friends who are using the products in some very unique ways. Um, and they have some unique perspectives, some unique use cases that they're bringing to the table. And so we have some exciting guests in the pipeline. And we'll be... We'll be putting out more information soon on, on what we're doing, but I'd like to keep it a little bit of a secret for now. Let's get right into it, folks. And stay tuned for the end because I have a special series in Apple Crime. Now, this will be a recurring series, and we're talking about Apple-related crime. We have some pretty hilarious ones in there for you, um, so stay tuned for that. That'll be fun. Apple-related crime, everybody. It's got gambling in there. It has theft. And everything. So stay tuned for that at the end of the show. Our first story of today, breaking news. This comes from Akatakara. He's saying that there is a 2021 iPad in the pipeline, an entry-level iPad. It's going to be packing the same 10.2-inch display, but the thinner 6.3-millimeter chassis and lighter weight of an iPad Air. So we're not getting that 10.5-inch Screen real estate that we love from 2019's iPad Air, but we are grabbing that um, that thinner and lighter design. The display is said to be fully laminated, uh, P3 wide color gamut, anti-reflective, true tone. Um, and Macintosh added to this that don't expect anything big from iPad Pro, just improvements on the silicon level. So probably an A14, A14X as far as iPad Pro goes this year. But what are your thoughts on this, Chris? Because I like the way that Apple is little by little, as these technologies become more affordable, sort of trickling down the features that were pro five years ago down to the entry level model. It's making a lot of this technology more and more accessible. So what are your thoughts on this? I mean, just touching base on what you said about bringing down a kind of what were pro level features down to the entry level, I think is very good for... Um, for the end user, because obviously, uh, you know, you have people like me, people like you who are students, uh, you know, bowling on a budget. And it's just trying to, uh, you know, get the get the bang for your buck. And I definitely think that, you know, minor improvements are things which, um, you know, can lead to um, greater change in the long run. But the thing is, is for me, for Apple to release um just kind of a minorly updated iPad, 
it sort of brings back the vibes of something along the lines of an iPod. You know, when they did yes. the iPod fifth generation, sixth, seventh, etc. It's just something where they're not really doing too much. And I think if they wanted to have a bigger kind of financial impact, um, you know, in terms of generating more revenue, then well, they would yeah. save it for like, a, you know, more expansive keynote. And here's the thing that I love about this. I, I would contrast what you're saying and say, this is a bigger deal than we think it is. Of course, Apple is moving. They're creeping up. They're, they're moving really slowly as far as their tablets. We saw an iPad Pro um, that, only, that only gained new silicon last year. One extra activated graphics core. That was pretty much the only update. LiDAR aside, which will be useful sometime in the future. Let's be real. Mainstream yeah. users aren't using that yet. Uh, we don't even have portrait mode on the iPad, which is quite surprising for the camera, given all the capabilities of LiDAR. But we've seen Apple's iPad line uh, become pretty stagnant, um, save for the iPad Air, which the only reason iPad Air is special is because it offers a lot of the same features from 2018's iPad Pro in a thinner, lighter, and more affordable package, right? Yeah. What I love about this is... It's making some of the technologies that were breakthrough years ago more accessible to a wider range of users at these cheaper price points. That's what I like about this strategy. However, I get where you're coming from when you're saying, you know, things are growing pretty stagnant because, you know, I'll just throw it out there. Apple has this monopoly on tablets. Google, Google released a press release just a few years ago saying, you know, the Pixel Book bombed and we're out of the tablet game. Samsung isn't making anything that can compete software-wise. Their yeah. hardware seems pretty competitive, but the, the app ecosystem just isn't there. The security architecture isn't in place. And so we're seeing Apple kind of drag its feet, so to speak, in updating these iPads. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you fully on that. I think it's something where because they have the majority of, uh, yeah, majority of control, they're able to only do incremental little updates, but they're still able to keep driving their product. Um, I would say it's slightly dissimilar from the iPod range, just because the iPod was yes. just kind of a general product phase, which, um, you know, has kind of stopped. And I like that you stagnated. brought that up because, because we saw this it began in 2008, sort of has continued on from there all the way down to 2015. 2016, we've seen this pattern where Apple is trickling down features from the iPhone down to the iPod Touch. And the iPod Touch, um, we've seen, is, is, is a huge mar has a huge market for children, um, for developers who just want a device to test new software on. It's, it's, it's less of an entry-level device as it is a niche device. It has its special use cases. IPod, yeah, iPod Touch used to be for people that didn't want an iPhone but wanted the capabilities of an iPhone. It was an entry-level thing. Now it's more of a niche use case device. Well, yeah, because, I mean, the thing is, is that with, with something like an iPod, Apple has sort of made their, their own product obsolete, not only through choice but just through um, – general hardware updates because i mean the ipod i forget what generation it is is it seventh generation i think it is yeah we're on generation seventh now yeah and that yeah that has a 
an iPhone 7 processor in it. That's the A10 Fusion. So they yeah, really drug it, their feet on, on upgrading that. They upgraded that in 2019 with an A10 Fusion. Yeah, and I mean, for something like that, I mean, yes, it's got the same processor as a phone, but there's, you know, not much else um, pizzazz to it that makes it stand out as a standalone device. Like you said, it's gone from being a mass market device to something which is more niche. Um, and even so, things like Xcode with the built-in yeah. simulators have made it so even developers now, I mean, yes, they can get an iPod to test things by choice, but they yes. don't even necessarily need that technology. They have that capability from Xcode on their on their MacBook or their iMac. And it's just something where, you know, it's a dying product range, but there's still kind of that slim market, like you said, which is mostly for children and parents that don't really want to invest in uh, a cellular device. But yeah. then even so, and, and there's... It's, it's a great stepping stone for children on their way to a smartphone. Well, exactly. But even so, I mean, I pose the argument of just getting a phone without a uh, without a SIM card in it, you know? Getting an yeah. unlocked phone mm -hmm. and waiting two years before putting one in. Because it's got well, the same yeah, features. Yeah, given the longevity just from a software and hardware perspective on, on these iPhones, um, how long they're lasting these days, the software support is definitely there. Um, and I'm sure you can get some killer carrier deals that would be in line with the price of an iPod touch. So that, that, that might be an interesting option for parents is buying a child, the latest iPhone or whatever iPhone. And, and cause we have the 10 R that's coming in at just four ninety nine now. Which yeah. Is a great value. I think, I think that would be an interesting solution as well. Well, yeah, because I mean, but I what I love buy... about this, Oh, sorry. This, sorry to interrupt, but what I love about this is, iPad has truly become what Apple wanted it to be is this post PC blockbuster device. Right. And you're yeah. seeing, you're seeing students, creators, entrepreneurs, innovators uh, adopt it in ways that used to be exclusive only to the Mac. And by making some of this technology more accessible uh, two years ago, it was the pencil, mm, yeah. uh, the keyboard, things like this on an iPad, the need the gap, the need for a, a Mac or a PC, just in general, that gap starts starts to widen a little bit. And you start asking, well, or not widen, but close. That gap starts to close a little bit. And you start wondering, well, what do I really need a computer for? And you're seeing computers, laptops, and desktops become these pro professional use case tools only used by professionals. It's closing this gap where most people just walk around with an iPad and they're confident well, in doing that. Well, yeah, I would say the only limiting factor of an iPad is the fact that it can run desktop apps in the sense that, yes, there's technology. Um, I think it's Rosetta, right? That does iOS apps on yeah. the M1. Yeah. So, I, I mean, so Rosetta, Rosetta is about the technology with Rosetta is about porting uh, Intel apps on Apple Silicon. Oh no, I'm thinking so Apple Silicon. One... Yeah. iOS apps run natively on Apple Silicon. Yeah. And we'll talk about that in a moment because there's been rumors that there's an M one chip in the pipeline for this year's iPad pro. And that would, that would enable, especially if they add Thunderbolt, 
users to dual boot between iPad OS and Mac OS, which could be really exciting. Well, yeah, and I, th- I think if something like that were to happen, I would definitely go out and I would buy a brand new iPad because at the moment I'm using an iPad mini fourth gen. And yeah, to be honest, I haven't really used it since I got my Mac and my my two iPhones. It's just something where, you know, I'm able to that do would bridge the I gap on do. the Mac for you. Yeah, yeah, because and then you be, have be things... dipping between those two operating systems, um, which are quite, you know, very mature at this point. Um, yeah, it would it would it would be akin to Apple's version of the Surface Go, which I think would be interesting. Well, yeah, because it's sort of like if you were to have a Chromebook, but then have um, an Android tablet or t- Android phone with, uh, you know, the kind of Chrome integrations into it. It's something yes. where if you wanted to, you could have that touch based functionality with, you know, minor hints of. Uh, you know, keyboard and trackpad support. But then if yeah. you wanted to go into the full environment that, you know, of a, of a laptop runtime, then you would be able to do that as well. And I think if Apple were to do something like that, you know, I think it would instantly hook a lot more people onto using iPads as um, definitely daily functional computers. Because I think like I uh, just looping back to the original point, it's something yeah. where, at the moment, I think the only limiting factor is that you're not able to go onto, um, you know, on onto a website, download a DMG yeah. file, open it, and install a desktop app onto the iPad. I think that's the only limiting factor. And that's factor. an important consideration, too. What does that mean for the security of iOS devices? Exactly. Because, but, I mean, of, you know, that's I could talk about iPad all day, Chris. Believe me, I love iPad. Um, well, yeah. But we have more stories to cover. Well, yeah, I mean, so just closing, on. Well, just closing yeah. up on that, it's just something where I think in terms of security, it would be something mm-hmm. where they'd have to do a lot of testing before they even bring out something remote to the public. Definitely. Just because, and I'm sure that's already going on. Well, yeah, because, I mean, they have the Apple, I think it's the security program. I, I can't remember the official name for it, but they're giving away or not necessarily giving away. But Pre- yeah, the Apple security, the bug bounty program. They're yes. giving away free, sorry, not free. They're giving away pre-jailbroken uh, iPhones to some of the world's top security breachers, Research. yeah, hackers, a.k.a. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about Intel, our old friend Intel, Chris. Ooh. They're introducing something today or yesterday. They're introducing RealSense ID. I mean... And this is their version of Face ID... And this is, get this, here's the kicker. They're saying the way that we're going to capitalize on this is we're going to use it at airports, ATMs, locks, gate locks, and more. So this isn't exclusive to computers or devices. It's, it's going to be implemented within public kiosks and things like that, bank ATMs and stuff like that. My concern is how do you protect this information at the silicon level? I don't want binary representation of my face being stored in the public domain. Well, yeah, because so what's then, your take on this? Well, when you when you think about it like that, it's something where you know it would either have to be something that would be stored, like you said, on a system, or um, you know, native to the device. Like you said, if it was a lock, uh, you know, one that you get from I don't know Home Depot, Lowe's, or whatever hardware store is near you. 
and then you were to set it up to recognize your face and you know probably your family's faces it's something which would have yeah. to be stored on the device and when when you think about it and how many people you know break into locks or you know have like you know lockdowns bad actors or, yeah yeah exactly it's something where you know you'd you'd have to have some sort of really tight um encryption or um just some sort of thing that says okay if the lock is broken open the data is useless well and this this is what we've seen with with apple products in particular when they brought touch id to the iphone 5s back in 2013 they took the they they've always taken privacy and security really care really seriously one of the things that they were really passionate about is hey we built a secure enclave right into the silicon meaning nobody's going to be able to access this information and so when you have uh, kiosks, you know, ATMs, things like that, ticketing machines, gates, all this stuff that you're trying to capitalize on for being, and, and honestly, quite honestly, you're trying to capitalize on these technologies for being so late to the game on facial recognition from Intel's perspective. Yeah. They, they want to make up lost time. Their biggest silicon uh, buyer, Apple, is pretty much dropping out of the game. They've said the future is our silicon, Apple silicon. So Intel says, well, we're going to build our own version of Face ID, and this is how we're going to implement it. But how do you go about, what are the implications of storing this information? It has to be stored somewhere on a server somewhere. I can't remotely upload my face to every ATM in the world every time I want to extract money from my account. That's the thing, is that it would have to involve some very widespread technology, because obviously you have things already where um i know some banks do it where you can sign into your bank account on the phone through your voice yes and it does uh i don't know some sort of audio recognition but yeah the thing is is that that's only for for telephone banking say if i want to go to an atm that's something you know you have your pin code and that's kind of it they don't really have and- anything in place currently that would enable widespread ATM coverage for things like yes. biometric data. And I think it would be really hard to ever implement. And that's, and that's what I'm curious is how is this going to be implemented? Because you see things like touch ID and face ID, Apple pay even already, already taking over this, this end of the market, this end of the industry. Um, we can, in fact, I use face ID whenever I'm going to extract money from an account from my account at the bank, I go to the ATM scan face ID on my phone and then wave my phone in front of the ATM. And that's all I need to do. Same thing. When you go to get gas, that's face ID, that's Apple pay um, at the gas station. So I'm curious where and, and, and in what way this is going to be implemented. Um, They said they're still working on the technology um, and they're going to have, they're going to be able to show us more soon. Well, yeah. And I mean, it also just, you know, touching base on it. If you're traveling, you know, and you're in a foreign country that you, I don't know, don't speak the native language or, yeah. uh, you know, have a hard time understanding and you're not able to access your, you know, your money or your uh, bike lock or I don't know, whatever the heck you're trying to access because, you know, there's some sort of fault with um, communicating the data between, uh, you know, server to client, then yes. You know, you, you've got a really sticky situation there that can't just be fixed by, 
phoning up a you know a support helpline it's something where you have to have a hardware fail safe in case something like that happened and so i think there would be two steps forward but one step back in that sense because obviously yeah when you think of something like I'm looking face forward ID, to finding out more about this exactly yeah because when you think about face id it's something where it's mostly just something that's designed for one device uh and one and device it's incredibly only. secure yeah exactly and it's it's just something where i think if you were to even if apple were to implement something where it's a face id but on you know you set up on one device but then it's on every single device to me that doesn't seem like a very viable option because obviously like you said there's the storage factor yeah and we and we've heard internal reports you know dating back to 2017 of of apple engineers trying to test wireless imac keyboards um, with touch id built in and they simply can't meet their own security standards um, as far as implementing these these biometric technologies into wireless devices um, they've, they've hit a lot of roadblocks as far as the security they want to deliver the standard they've set for themselves um, as far as encrypting all of this stuff at the silicon level so it'll be interesting to see how that pans out but moving forward, Chris, you, 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 um, you keep up on Samsung news? Are you a student uh, of the Samsung? I mean, considering that the I'm... show is Appleosophy. Yeah, because I was going to say. a little Samsungosophy here. I mean, because the I want to bring time, this up. The only time that we brought in Samsungosophy was on April Fool's. I think it was 2018 or 2019. I, I can't <laughs> remember. But anyways, let's get straight into it. So. Samsung is saying for Q7 TVs um, that you can yes. actually get a smart trainer option that analyzes your posture during workouts. Um, yes, that's so. So this, they're they're delivering these new mini and micro LED models. They have Neo Quantum processors in them, and the idea with this is you're going to be able to purchase a separate uh, Nintendo, not Nintendo. Uh, Xbox 360 style connect device, a camera that's that sits on top of your television. Um, and the idea with this is it's going to track your form with something called Samsung Smart Trainer. And what I look at this and I see is this is a direct competitor with Apple Fitness, Chris. I mean, let's I... explore what it's all about. So what are, what are your first impressions? And then we'll talk more about the technology. I mean, I think it's a little bit creepy because, I mean, there have been reports about, you know, people being able to hack into Samsung smart TVs and be able to control them remotely. Um, I mean, obviously, Definitely. there's been software updates and, and things like that, but there's still that underlying kind of issue of will this ever get out to anyone? Because obviously workouts are something where I, you know, they're personal to people they're not something well you feel where... very vulnerable during a workout you mean you know you don't you don't look your best you're all sweaty you know you exactly. really don't want everyone in the world looking at you and when you have uh, this this history of samsung devices being hacked just months even weeks within release um that's quite concerning and that's from that's from a privacy perspective um beyond that if we're looking at the technology here Oh, it's cool. I'm going to read the it fine is... print. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to read the fine print for a moment. This is actually pretty interesting. It's amazing because this does something that Apple Fitness doesn't do, which it analyzes your form. It's able to tell you 
a little bit about your form, how you can adjust things for each movement. And it looks like we only have strength workouts. So not a very, very big library compared to Apple Fitness, but it gives you two rings at the end, one for form and one for reps. So they're taking a page out of Apple's book uh, for the rings and it estimates the amount of calories burned. It doesn't use a smart fitness tracker or anything like that. It just estimates based on your movements, how many calories you burn. So I don't know if there's kind of how, how accurate that is compared to uh, the Apple Watch linking that Apple Fitness does. But I think this is very interesting technology. Yeah, I mean, it's something where, you know, you'd, you'd be able to, in theory, if you already have something like a home gym and have the appropriate equipment, you'd be able to do something where, you know, even if there's probably another lockdown or, you know, you're in your nuclear fallout shelter or something like that, you'd still be able to. <laughs> we don't know where we'll, where we'll be I mean, a couple months from now. Yeah, I mean, just given given what's happened recently, you know, there's no right. saying as to what the possibilities are that could happen. 20, 2021 told 2020, hold my beer. Exactly, yes. And so, <laughs> you know, I'm in a lockdown currently. I don't know about you, but... Um, I am as well. Yep, so... We're both in that same boat, and I think for me, they're saying that it's going to potentially go on until April. And so it's something where, you know, having this technology yes. available is something where, you know, those fitness fanatics can really get in and continue their routine. Because I know a lot of people do miss the gyms. Um, yes, myself included. Yes. And I, I, I mean, the thing is, as well, is that the technology is pretty insane. The fact that... It's just something that you put on the top of your TV and you're able to mm -hmm. have all of that information plus information about how you can improve is something which I think is more valuable, I, I would uh, I would say, uh, than, than Apple Fitness Plus because it's something where Apple Fitness Plus will just tell you the statistics, plain and simple. And mm -hmm. you, you have, have the analytics on screen. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you have that information in front of you, but it's down to your um, kind of initiative to be able to push forward and say, you know, I want to be able to do, I don't know, five reps more or something like yes. that. Whereas with Samsung... This actually holds you more accountable. Yes, and it's something where yeah. you're able to have that feedback given to you rather than you having to kind of self-assume. Yes. Um, now, we I mean, have a statement here from a representative from Engadget who was able to, to spend a little bit of time with the Samsung fitness feature. And they said, at the end of my very short workout, the system displayed two rings with percentages showing how well I met target number of reps and overall form. I tried the workout twice, and both times my results were 100% on quantity and I scored a 96 and 98% on quality. While I still have doubts on how accurate the software is at judging the form, the rings are definitely motivating, and I feel the desire to close them the next time. I wonder where they got the ring idea from, Chris. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I personally think that it's from our logo and uh, that we should sue. Uh, oh, definitely, you know. definitely. Like <laughs> how Apple sues any company that uses a pair as their logo. Oh yeah, I mean, I would say you're comparing apples to oranges, but it's pears to apples, and it's it's not really the same thing. Yeah, it, you know, <laughs> two things. It's not really 
tomato, tomato. It is two different things. <laughs> but, you know, we'll, we'll continue. Very, yeah, very interesting. <laughs> so, Apple Glasses. Chris, are you stoked for Apple Glasses? I mean, it would be something that I would look into. I've personally thought about buying the Snapchat Spectacles a couple times. You know, um, yes. I... I was up in Harrods, uh, it was just before Christmas, and I saw them, and I, I think it's the Spectacles 2 or Spectacles 3, I can't remember. Yeah. But, um, you know, those are cool devices. The yeah. only thing is, is that they're I'm only past... for Snapchat. Yeah, I, and I'm past the whole idea of of gimmicks as far as AR goes. Like, even with LiDAR yeah. on the iPhone, it's like, okay, this, this is cool, that I can place, you know, objects, little toys around my house. But I want to start getting productive with this stuff. I want to see how it's actually going to change my life day to day. I want to, you know, lay virtual documents on my desk and manage them. I, I want to type an email out on a virtual keyboard in front of me. I, I want that future. Um, I had the first generation Snapchat spectacles when they came out. And, of course, those those would just record. Later versions of the spectacles allowed for um, some augmented reality stuff where you're adding scenes around around you and things like that. So that's that's kind of our first look. And it's been kind of underwhelming, as is the LiDAR on Apple products. It's and, and Seth, except for a few niche uh, use cases, some some special scenarios where medical professionals and things are using them. It's not really this mass market technology. It's still very much in its infancy. Yeah, well, because, I mean, the thing is, is that with something like Snapchat Spectacles, it's something where they have a primary purpose and anything outside of that is something which it's unable to do. I mean, yes, you can record and you have those AR features, um, but it's just something where if I'm going to get something that's, like you said, going to you know change how I do things day to day, it needs to be consistent. And I, I, think I want this that... to be the thing that kills my iPad. And I love my iPad. I want this to be yeah. the device that kills my iPad, kills my watch. I mean, heck, you know, throw all the health, health metrics in there. Take my temperature from behind my ear and, and let me just run with glasses on. You know how, I don't know how well that would yeah, go. I mean... fog up, but aside from that, <laughs> talking apple glasses guess what chris you yeah know what's i mean going on with apple glasses yes what's going on you tell me they're in the verification stage of prototypes that means we're six okay. to nine months away of the next stage of prototypes <laughs> so we'll see a release sometime in 2023 at the earliest and uh, that's according to uh leakers like mark german bloomberg's mark german um, he's talking about this and he's saying this is separate from Apple VR. So Apple's apparently working on Apple VR and Apple Glass. These aren't official names. We're just dubbing them based on the technology. But Apple VR will be like an Oculus Quest competitor. It's going to be focused more on gaming versus productivity, things like that. And then Apple Glasses is supposed to be the this the ambient technology version, the Apple Watch-esque version where you're seeing only the most important things at only the most important times and it's made for short interaction. And apparently at this stage of prototyping, they're very focused on battery and weight distribution. So they want these things to, to fit evenly. Um, I've used smart glasses in the past. Um, 
And one of the problems is they usually stick batteries on one side. Um, Snapchat does this too. So you kind of have a, a little weight pool on either the re left or right and your glasses are always askew. Um, I'd want something kind of like AirPods Pro where I forget that they're there. I think that would be very yeah. special. <laughs> well, because I think Apple, with their kind of skill in the development side of things, I think they would probably go along the lines of, um, you know, when people are wearing their glasses on their forehead and, you know, they get all panicked. It's like, what did I do with my glasses? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's just, oh, they're on my forehead. I think that's the type of um, product that they would be trying to go for is something which would replace something that's already in people's lives. Mm -hmm. um, the only thing is, is that I would say the way that Apple would, I guess, really capitalize on it is doing some sort of partnership with, uh, you know, glasses manufacturers. That means you can get something like a prescriptive lens or like a Ray-Ban thing. That'd be interesting. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like their partnership with Hermes. Because, yeah, because then it brings a little bit more um, of a tiered system. Because obviously you have the base version, you have the middle tier, the high tier, and then you have the design tier where it's, you know, like you said, Apple Hermes Glass and... Sport. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Apple so Glass along the Edition. Of... Yeah, yeah, I mean, different... I couldn't see... I couldn't see it being made out of 24 karat gold or, um, or ceramic material, but you know, it's, <laughs> it's down to them and what people want to pay at the end of the day. Well, and, and that's something we've seen with Apple watch. Apple watch is more than a device. It's, it's, it's an artistic expression of who you are based on what casing, what band you pick. Um, it's, it's something that's so personal you wear it. And so it's quite literally uh, a, a part of you. And so it has to be extremely customizable. It has to be built for different use cases and different forms of fashion and, and personal expression. And that's something they took maybe too seriously from the get-go with things like the, the $17,000 Apple Watch edition. But that aside, that's what's latest. That's, that's what's new with Apple glasses. And we look forward to seeing what's next. Again, yeah, 2023 is the mean, earliest, so I'll be waiting patiently. A little bit my more, a <laughs> little bit more. But anyways, moving on. So Tile could be foreshadowing Apple's AirTags by bringing out ultra-wideband item trackers uh, in an attempt to kind of crush the competition before it even exists with, uh, with Apple's AirTags. Now, yes. the funny thing is, is that with Apple's AirTags, um, one of our editors, Paraj, um, I always like to give him a shout out because Paraj uh, Dutta, it was yeah. his kind of his one his groundbreaking story. Uh, he was the one that actually found this back in April of two thousand. Yeah, that was huge. And, uh, and twenty, and yeah, I mean that was something where Apple had a real big snafu there by yeah. uh, by so featuring it. For those in... of you that aren't familiar with this, back in April of twenty twenty, one of our top editors at Appleosophy, Paraj Dutta he discovered that in the Apple support video, one of the Apple support videos on YouTube, it was for find my, the find my app, which is the whole find my yeah. friends and everything else. He discovered that Apple actually had an air tags section an air tags drop down menu quickly screenshotted it and posted it on Apple philosophy. And before we knew it, um, every 
tech website blog out there was covering it. So this is, again, like you said, a little snafu that, that Paraj quickly grabbed and found. And, and that was really cool. We know that these are in the pipeline. We've known about these for quite a while. Um, Apple hasn't officially told us that they exist, but it's pretty clear that they exist. And it sounds like Tile might beat them to the punch. Um, and we've heard uh, rumors just this week that Apple may not even be going with ultra wideband. They're exploring models with Bluetooth LE, Bluetooth low energy. So AirTags could go either way. Yeah, I mean, it's something where I guess they're early enough in the in the design phase that they're still yeah. able to switch out the technology. And I think and as my, well, well my for something like... My understanding is Bluetooth LE isn't as power efficient as the ultra wideband chips. And it doesn't deliver data in 3D space. It isn't spatially of where, of where something is. It's just... A more of a proximity thing and on the lines yeah. of proximity ultra wideband we've seen especially in the latest beta of ios 14.4 um how the ultra wideband chip is is going to bridge the gap between uh apple products so you have things like the HomePod mini where the closer you hold your phone to it your u1 enabled phone your ultra wideband enabled phone the closer you hold your phone to it you see this animation it's kind of like a rubber band animation and it shows you the proximity in real time, how close you're getting to another device. And it's kind of like a bubble. It's like a rubber band and then the bubble pops once the rubber band snaps. And then you see, okay, I'm paired yeah. to this new device. And so you see this really seamless interaction between products and you see it's a peek at the future of, of all Apple devices and how they'll be able to interact so seamlessly. You're, this isn't a command to Siri. This isn't a button you push. It's a, it's a handoff a software handoff that's spatially aware. Well, yeah, and I mean, that that's the thing as well, is that it's something where Apple will always choose kind of the best option for things like power efficiency and ability to have the most widespread coverage. But I, I think the other interesting aspect to the, the kind of AirTags product is the the network because obviously there's been mm -hmm. rumors back and forth uh you know from from hogwarts to the moon saying that <laughs> i like the way that, that hogwarts it'll work, to the moon exactly i mean it's it's here there and everywhere saying that they'll they'll network off of each other almost so it's something where if another iphone doesn't have to be yours um mm -hmm. but just as long as it's another iphone that has some sort of bluetooth uh connection enabled it will use that iPhone's Bluetooth connection to be able to reference uh, the AirTag's location. And then say, if you're signed in on Find My, uh, or I was about to say Find My iPhone there, but it's no longer yeah. that. It's just called Find My. You'd be able to see it. And, and I think something seen, like that is pretty powerful. It's very powerful. And we've seen Apple work on this uh, for, for quite a while. If you go back to the Apple Watch Series 2, um, from 2016, it was GPS enabled, right? We had models that were GPS enabled. And the way they did that was by shooting off Bluetooth signals in every direction and then pinging those off of other devices, other iPhones, other Apple Watches, routers, cell towers, all these different things. So it wasn't a cellular watch, but you could still track your run roughly on GPS using um, Bluetooth pings. And that's how it, it positioned you. 
And so you, we've seen Apple work on this technology for quite a while. And I can just imagine a future where you have ultra wideband chips uh, scattered across a grocery store, for instance. And then you can sort of point your phone in any direction that you'd want. And it'll show you where the item you may be looking for is and what aisle you need to walk down and how you're going to get there. It can map those directions for you in real time in 3D space. And we've seen Google try to do things like this um, with, with Google Street View. And the implementation isn't there. You need that precise positioning. So I, I, I see that feature in the pipeline and I'm excited about it. I definitely think it's something where there's a lot of potential. It's just taking time to act on it and basically have that R&D element, the research and mm -hmm. development. I want to talk about AirPods Max real quick. Now, I got these yes. on launch day and I'm pretty, I'm pretty thrilled with them. I like the sound quality. Um, I think they're worth the money. That's the number one question I get. To me, they're worth the money. I love the materials it's been made with. I'm not a huge fan of the case, but it's grown on me a little bit. I like the purpose that it serves. I like the fact that it puts them in a low power state. And I like that it's that it's easy to use, that I can just slip them in and out. Kind of like, it's kind of like an iPad smart cover. It doesn't really protect much of the device, but it serves a small purpose and it serves it well. Is, is the design something that I'm particularly fond of? No, but it's it's growing on me in a sense. I'm still not going to say that it's acceptable or that I approve of it. I don't want to be roasted out there, but it's growing on me. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot I of... I hate to say that. A lot of people still... Yeah, because, I mean, a lot of people still say that it just looks like a bra, you know? it's Or a purse. You know, yeah, or so something like that. It's, yeah. it's not something where, in my mind, it's aesthetically pleasing, well, sometimes like I feel said, like when I'm carrying its... it, I feel like I'm carrying a little man purse. <laughs> I mean, I kind of wish it had could. a sleeve on the side. That way I could put my keys and other things, you know? Yeah, keys, card. <laughs> yeah. Then, then, Apple card. then, you know what? There's the upsell, Apple. Add, well, yeah, add I mean, MagSafe Apple... to, to the, the sleeve for AirPods Max and I'll be in. Put my wallet on there. Yeah, they need to get us as product testers or, you know, uh, <laughs> hire like us, Apple. Disney's, yeah, like Disney's Imagineers, you know, coming up with the next big experience. <laughs> the I, next I think, big thing. You know, that would be a, we do yeah, have be one a, more thing. A, a good job. And we call it the AirPods Max MagSafe sleeve. Holds your keys, wallet, and more. <laughs> and it starts at just $199. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Beverly Hill rich people would probably love that. They they'd eat that up just like they ate the you know seventeen grand Apple Watch Gold Edition up. Look, you know? the only people I know that bought the Apple Watch Edition were those Silicon Valley nerds waiting for it on day one, yes. refreshing the pre-order page. <laughs> yeah, too much money to to to, to spend, so they just spent. It was it funny. Days, there was a which... conversation about that on Renee Ritchie's podcast, Apple Talk, that he does with Georgia Dow, um, and they were talking about the. They didn't know many people that bought those, but the people that did weren't the people you were expecting. They weren't fashion icons. They were nerds, <laughs> just like us. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, that's the thing is that like, there's there's a lot of gimmicky tech out there. Oh, yeah. Like, um, the dual screen razor phone and and stuff oh, yeah. like that. I forget the name. And of we're going to talk about that um, in a moment as far as foldables and things like that. are foldables the future. Yeah, so that's actually a good segue, but. Uh, you know, with regards to that, a lot of those uh, devices, like you said, aren't people who are trying to make a fashion statement or 
you know, your Kanye Wests. Yeah. They're just people which are nerdy and want to try things out. I mean, I would probably get it, but I'd probably end up returning it within the 14-day uh, return guarantee period just because <laughs> it's something where, you know, it's ex- it's public experimental technology. That's yeah. that's what I'm going to deem it. Yeah, you know, it's, it's an experiment. So it's, it's an experiment that only a $2 trillion company can afford to conduct. And that's, well, yeah, that's one of the important I mean, they, takeaways. Yeah, they have capital which, you know, far exceeds any other, uh, you know, company with regards to how much they can throw away in, uh, you know, research and development yes. and, uh, you know, that kind of technical aspect. I just want to note a few things on AirPods Max and far as what my experience has been. We have this thing going on. It's called Dripgate. Okay. Oh, and that's what I've oh, done. I've, I've created cringe. that name, Dripgate. And the, what we're hearing from users is if you wear AirPods Max for prolonged periods of time, specifically five to eight hours at a time, condensation will begin to develop behind the ear cups. Does this damage the AirPods Max? We don't have any evidence that it does so far. I'm sure long term this could damage them. Um, but this seems to be a heat, sweat-related issue of wearing them this long. Um, I haven't experienced this. Um, I've done moderate workouts like yoga, strength, and core with them on. And I'll never do that again because they got way too hot on my ears. So I went back to AirPods yeah, Pro for stop, that. Yeah, it stops the airflow. Yeah. But what I, I do love is the sound quality with these. And... I want to quote Rene Ritchie because he had a great quote on this. And he said that the AirPods Max makes uh, AAC audio sound better than it has rights to sound. Um, the audio sounds so great on these. The bass is really controlled. Instrumentals are silky smooth. You get those, those sharp beats when the synth comes in. I'm really satisfied with the sound quality. But I think what Rene Ritchie's alluding to is he's, he's talking specifically about the silicon. He's talking about the H1 chip. And to be clear, this is Apple's audio Bluetooth integrated chip that they have in each earpiece. And it's a 10-core processor that enables this, this adaptive EQ, this adaptive equalizer. And so it takes this, this AAC audio codec, which is, a, it, which is completely a far cry from things like LDAC, and CD quality as far as kilobits and the amount of information that's being delivered to the headphones. It takes that dated audio codec that doesn't hold much information and it elevates that codec using machine learning, using all these, these complex algorithms to give you a sound signature that sounds more cohesive. YouTuber SnazzyQ, he noted that if you hop into the settings um, on your iOS device and you start tuning things and you, you flick that slider over to balance tones, and then you, you sort of tweak with the settings. You add soft sound boost on the bass. This delivers a cohesive sound signature that's in line with headphones like the Odyssey and Bang & Olufsen's, which come out at $800. So you're thinking about it, it's bringing a sound signature on, quite frankly, a dated audio codec to the mass market and how when we say mass market, these things are still really expensive. But when you consider that 
you're delivering a sound signature in line with $800 headphones at a price of $549, uh, $550, that's huge. And that's what Apple's about. They're about bringing this amazing technology to the mainstream and doing it in the most efficient way possible. Exactly. And I mean, I think it's something as well that the fact that they still kind of have their Apple-esque kind of feel to the whole product with regards to, you know, they're giving you the carrot on the stick almost, like you said, because you can go in and you can adjust the EQ to how you want it to sound. Yeah. And that's not something that Apple really does uh, as far as the customization perspective. Yeah. And just at the silicon level though, what we see with the H1 chip is Mm. you have this, like I said, a dated audio codec, um, one that prioritizes uh, lower data caches versus quality sounding like something that's in line with Sony's LDAC codec, which is 990 kilobits per second. Let's contrast that with AAC, which is what Apple Music operates of, and that's only 256 kilobits per second. 256 kilobits yeah, per I mean, second. 256 kilobits information is being delivered to your ear, and it sounds in line with something that's nearly 990 kilobits. Again, this is still yeah, far it's... from CD quality at 1440 kilobits, but it's still a huge deal. Well, yeah, I mean, it's crazy. And it's something as well, because like I, I have a friend, AWOL artist, if you want to search him up on SoundCloud or Spotify, hey, AWOL artist. A-W-A-L-L. Yep. A-W-A-L-L artist. He puts so much into his music. And the one thing that he always tells me is that he always is looking for a cohesive sound environment for his music. Yes. So, you know, when he when he's doing his music, he'll tell me, you know, listen to it in the car, listen to it in, uh, you know, just straight from the phone speakers, listen to it with headphones on through the TV, just to kind of gain the ambiance of how his music sounds. Yeah. And I think with something like this, AirPods Max, it brings you that kind of functionality of being able to emulate different um, listening experiences without actually having to go into them. Uh, yeah. And I, th- I think as well, it's something which producers especially would value because they will, you know, go out and spend $800 on, you know, the headphones that you mentioned a couple minutes ago. Yeah, the and, Odyssey or something like the Bang & Olufsen, which is, you know, 200 or $300 more, more expensive. Yeah, just to... In- yeah, just to ensure that their sound quality is the best of the best. But like you said, the bit rate that's being delivered is so, so small compared to CD quality or to, um, you know, just general codecs. And, and we, something where... Yeah, and we've seen, you see like photo codecs like Apple Pro Raw and things like that coming directly from yes. Apple. I can imagine a wireless future where we're getting something, we're getting the audio codec that's even more efficient, that also delivers more information than AAC. And this takes place in a 5G future where we can deliver more information. We can continue to stream songs. We can continue to stream video in a 5G future where everybody has access. The majority of people have access to a 5G network and it takes just as little time to stream a song at 990 kilobits as it did to stream it at 256 kilobits. 
And so you're packing well, more yeah, information I, I, into these packages that, that, that house your song. And that's what I think, that's how I visualize the codex is this is a, a package of information. And the larger that package gets, the more, the wider the sound signature is on that song. And think about a future where when 5G is finally mainstream, we can deliver high-end audio video codecs and, and still stream them in a reasonable amount of time. You're not sitting there waiting for the song to load. Yeah, you're able to, you know, just be able to press play and you can get into your mojo and be able to do whatever you, you know, want to do while listening to your music. And I think that's something that's very valuable because, you know, like like today, I went for a cycle and mm-hmm. I was waiting at least 30 seconds for my song to, to load up because it, it's a, like a 30 hour mixtape from uh, one of these DJs. Um, dj Flylo or something like that i think yeah. it is it's on gta and um you know i had to wait like 30 seconds for it to load up and yes you could argue that it's only 30 seconds but it's something where if i press play i want it to be instant you want it to be I instant that that's, that's, the, that... that's the future that's the 5g future that, that we're ushering in uh as we speak precisely yeah i mean you've read my mind there it's something yeah. where that 5g technology mixed in with the kind of codec uh development i'm gonna say is something where i think it's extremely valuable for maximizing the amount of data that could be shared but in the minimum in the smallest amount of time possible and and now people people love to to compare airpods max to the sony xm4s which previously for the mid-range consumer market these were these were it. These were the headphones you went and bought. They were considered to be the best consumer headphones on the market. And I've tried both. I've tried the Sony XM4s. And my opinion is, and I could be biased on this. This is just what I hear. It's kind of like photos, photo and video. Audio is very subjective. But what my takeaways are is I do hear a clearer sub bass. Um, the instrument separation is a little bit clearer on AirPods Max. And I get better low end that those subtle, those subtle pangs and dings in each song are things that I hear on AirPods Max that may be a little muddy, a little muffled on the XM4s. And a final note that I'd like to add is ear positioning. Um, I've played with the, the telescoping arms on this, on the AirPods Max, which I must say feel very premium. They're very robust and, and, when you tug at that material, it feels like you're using, like you're a surgeon, like you're using these premium tools, um, that stainless steel band. And I'm nerding out on that for a moment, but ear positioning on this is fantastic. No matter which way, I don't even have to think about it. And that's the gist of Apple right there is I don't have to adjust myself to use the product. I throw these on my hand and I get consistent sound no matter how I choose to wear them. And that's that's what I find to be very special about this product. Yeah, I mean, it's something which I, I think is is valuable as well. So moving on, our last story, and stay tuned, guys. This is our last story before this week in Apple Crime. So stay tuned. We got some pretty silly ones for you. Our last story before this week in Apple Crime is the iPhone 12 mini. We've seen some sales reports, Chris, and they're not good. I can't say that I'm very optimistic for the iPhone uh, iPhone 12 mini. And I mean, I'm looking at this graph right in front of me. I'm colorblind, but I can still tell that the iPhone 12 mini has the smallest yeah, little piece so of the graph right you there. You can see, 
So this is a report from October, the October, November sort of quarter four look at iPhone 12 sales and the iPhone 12 mini, Chris, you ready for this? Only it made up only it to 6% me. of total iPhone sales. Only 6%. I mean, that that's poor. When you, when you think about all the other phones that, that Apple currently offers, you know, with regards to the the 10R, the 11, 11 Pro, Pro Max, 12, you know, it goes on. For 6% for the one of the latest flagship phones, I think is very, very poor on, on Apple's part, uh, given that, you know, I think this year there's too much choice. It's something yeah. where there's, you know, there's four different models which people can choose from and people don't know how to position themselves. Yes, obviously Apple, you know, will try and do that for you because obviously they have salespeople, but um, it's, it's just something where there's no real market for the iPhone 12 mini. You know, I think if they were to release a phone like that, they would probably be better off um, climatizing it to a regional market rather than having something is a blanket product. Here's why I'm surprised though that this was largely a shot in the dark for Apple that they shot and they missed. I guess you could say that given that it's only 6% of the sales. Is this a miss largely, right? I would say it given is. Given that yeah. given that iPhone 12 accounted for 69% of sales and iPhone nice. 12 Pro accounted for 30% of the sales. Um, that's not counting iPhone 11 and things like that. But Let's look at this because we've seen Apple's expanded their iPad line, right? We talked about this at the beginning of the show. They're trickling down all those features mm-hmm. from the pro models, adding them to the low end models at different price points. We've seen that method yeah. work for iPad. We've seen it work for Samsung, actually. Samsung has phones at, at every price point, all with a different feature set, and people can go through and sort of tweak what they want and buy the phone that they ultimately want. Everything's pretty much infinitely customizable. And we've seen that method work for them. They have a greater share of the smartphone market than Apple still to this day. We've seen Apple, back when Apple released the first iPhone, for many, many years, it was just one iPhone at one premium price point. And, you know, beginning with the iPhone 5C, which was largely a failure, (laughs) um, iPhone XR, yes. which was wildly successful. iPhone 11, which was wildly successful. They've been expanding this line of iPhones to offer the best technology at the most affordable price point for whoever wants the newest iPhone. And we've seen this program, this method, um, become even more efficient because people are using their older iPhones as a subsidy for their new one with things like Apple Trade and things like that. And Apple devices hold up their value better than any other device out there, arguably, as far as smartphones go. So why do you think this is failing? Why do you think this, on paper, this should, this would feel like it's work? We've It should work on paper. We've heard reviewers we, clamoring, just begging Apple for a smaller phone, a pocketable phone. Reviewers seem to be all over this, but the general public is not interested. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just because people have become accustomed to having a larger device in the sense that, you know, 
there's more screen space. You know, you had it when Apple started to introduce the iPhone 6 Plus range and, yes. and that kind of stuff, you know, where they're trying to subtly and slowly increase the size of their phones over time to then, you know, be able to uh, upsell them the next opportunity that they get. And I think to backtrack on it and make it smaller is something where, you know, it's not really feasible because it's something where the iPhone 12 mini, like I said, isn't something where a Western market would, um, you know, find itself buying a phone because, you know, in, in kind of a Western stereotype, bigger is better. You know, people want the, you know, okay, the biggest so that's, thing. That's what you're attributing it to. Okay. Yeah. And I'm attributing it to kind of a more um, psychological, sociological kind of framework, which would put it to people want a bigger device because it shows off that they're richer, that they're, you know, the whole able bigger to is better mentality. Uh, and we've seen that go in the other yeah, direction uh, because consumers were prioritizing the whole and even Apple themselves, the, the reachability, the fact that you can reach anywhere on the screen with just your thumb, the pocket ability of, of having a, a small device, how convenient that is. And then, like you said, Apple sort of groomed people, trained them that, hey, the future is giant phones. If you think about the iPhone 6, which came in at 4.7 inches on the diagonal, that's in contrast to a, a four inch phone that they had shipped the year before. These are, these are dramatic changes. Um, and I, like you said, I think people have kind of been trained to accept the whole bigger is better mentality on phones and they want to see more of their content. Yeah. Well, but, and it's also that aspect of why would I want to watch Netflix on a smaller screen when there's one that's in the kind of similar price tier that's, you know, a good, you know, couple, uh, you know, like an inch and a half bigger. Yeah, you're paying, Why would well, you're paying you at least hundred dollars more for that screen real estate. That's a huge. I mean, it's a huge well, jump you, when you think about hundred dollars more. Exactly. I mean, when you think about it from that perspective, from the price, it is something which you know a lot of people factor in. But yeah. for those, you know, majority of people, they're just wanting something that you know is able to do the job and do it on you know a big display with no lag or latency or anything like yeah. that. And I think that was something as well where people, you know, kind of stuck to their morals. They they mm -hmm. weren't wanting to try something new because obviously people, like I said, have a, become accustomed to the screen and size increasing. But yeah. in addition to that, it's also something where having the mini version of an iPhone hasn't ever been implemented into that product line. I mean, yes, you have something like the iPad mini, but yeah. for something like that, it makes more sense. For the mini tag to be associated with the iPhone, I think was something that spooked people out and made it so it didn't seem as desirable because it well, was Well, it's interesting because, you know, when you hear that the iPhone starts at $699, you are like, wow, that's pretty cool. And then, then you realize you have to buy the smallest iPhone um, in order to to obtain this device at that, that lower price point. And least amount of uh, spec'd out internals as well. Yeah. As far as memory and things go, as far as uh, storage, but enough about that, Chris, Are you ready for the best part of the show? Yes, I am. 
It's this week in Apple Crime, guys. Uh-oh, they're going to catch us. <laughs> this week in Apple Crime. We have some three we have three stories for you guys today and I'm I'm thrilled to share them with you. you ready for our first story, Chris? I think you'll find yes, some of pretty hilarious. I mean, now, I mean, I would say from... just oh, sorry, just before we get into it as well. Um, you know, these are actual things that have happened. So, true you know, story. Laugh. True story based on a true story, or it's not even based on a true story, it is a true story. So, um, this is real news. You know, we, we hope you we guys need to come up with some sort of, yeah, we need to come up with some sort of theme tune about this, or we could even make it a separate podcast. I, I feel I think it's quite funny. Yeah, I plan to keep this uh, a segment on, on the podcast, and, and it'll always be at the very end. So, stay tuned. Our first story for today this, this, this is a good one, Chris. So it begins with this 40-year-old guy, 41-year-old dude. He's a data administrator worker for the University of Berkeley. Okay? Now, he pleads guilty to conspiracy to interstate transportation of stolen goods. And here's how he did it. They issued him a university credit card. And this allows him to make purchases on behalf of the school, right? He has a Mm -hmm. direct line to purchase macbooks from apple so he gains an understanding of the system and he says if i keep my purchases under a certain amount they won't be questioned (laughs) right long story short he buys two hundred thousand dollars worth of macbooks and he sells them to the same buyer out of state for i don't know how long it doesn't specify but two hundred thousand dollars worth of macbooks and the way that it was discovered and this is noted in um, a blog post on Apple Insider uh, by Stephen Silver. Thank you, Stephen, for, for providing this article. This is awesome. People at the university started noticing, Chris. They started noticing, where's my computer? How come I can't have the latest computer? Where's all this equipment that we're supposed to be ordering? <laughs> and now he's, uh, he's pleading guilty. Yeah, I mean, you just got to wait for the data entry guy to, to catch up to you, and then you're... He's you're running the numbers, so... <laughs> Yeah, he's, he he's running the numbers. Long term. Yes, I mean, it, it's it's scummy in a way. I, I think it's it's quite sad because when you think about how much goes into the kind of college education system and especially with it being the University of California, you know, you know a quite affluent um, university. Yeah, the, the fact university that they're able to shell out, yeah, $200,000 oh into MacBooks. And for them to, you know, that that's, in theory, students' money. You know, yeah. that's their tuition going towards buying a MacBook for, for it to benefit scheme. the prof- – <laughs> Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's sad. It's sad because, I mean, w- when you think about how much people sacrifice in order to be able mm-hmm. to go into college and, Definitely. you know, you know, be supported and end up with a, a degree at the end of it. It's, it's yeah, this turned sad, into a really serious but... conversation, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, this is the thing is that we were, we were going all, all hype about all the other news and now we've kind of hit the hard hitting. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to just... make this, I don't want to make this too somber. They caught him. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> um, well, let's, let's just look at this. Uh, as as well is um 
$12,000 worth of Apple products are stolen from a Delaware Best Buy. And so five men were caught stealing the secure, uh, stealing the Apple products that are worth up to twelve thousand um, dollars. Yeah, and it was in Dover, yeah, Dover, Delaware. And yeah. you know, this is this is some serious stuff as well. I mean, not as bad as a two hundred thousand, but Dover, Delaware. I've been to the Best Buy in that area. I'm not sure whether it's that exact one. I'll have to Google Maps it or whatever. Um, but, you know, I've been in there. I think my, my Apple Watch was there because my oh mom my got it for me. And she, Because the thing is, is that with Delaware, I mean, it, it's, you know, a little bit of gray area-ish um, for, for yeah. me just because, you know, I'm, I'm not a tax accountant. But the sales tax there is 0%. So you don't mm-hmm. pay sales tax on your, uh, your Apple devices or clothes or things like that. And so whenever note. I come over... Yeah, and so whenever I come over to the U.S. to buy, you know, my stuff, I take a, you know, half an hour drive down to, to Dover and, you know, I stock up on all the Apple tech that I need because I don't have to pay sales tax on it. And yeah. so, you know, it's something where they've taken the 0% to the next level by <laughs> making the entire cost nothing by by stealing it so um they stole two purses and used credit cards and gift cards for their illegal purchases that's creative yeah i mean it's just something where yeah the the (laughs) the kind of method of some people is just so questionable i I don't get it sometimes i really don't look at this last story though here this this one's my favorite this guy he's a 52 year old courier he found himself in a bit of a financial pickle, Chris, because you know what he did? What did he do? You tell me. He stole 13 iPhone 11s from a loading bay at his work site. <laughs> and then, get this, he confesses. He admits to stealing the Apple products, here's the kicker, to support his gambling addiction. Talk about a I problem. Mean... <laughs> he since said yeah, that he's I mean... seeking treatment for his gambling addiction. After admitting to this, well, yeah, I mean, when the fun stops, it, it really should stop. And you know, if you're stealing iPhones, <laughs> to... he realized that he'd gone too far. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> the thing is, is that if you're even going that far, you know, not even iPhones, but if you're just stealing in general to fuel yeah. some sort of gambling addiction, you know, it's he's living life not healthy. He woke up that morning and said. I want some of Tim Apple's phones. That's how I'm going to roll the dice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there there's also been other stories of you know couriers doing things mm-hmm. like that, and then there's also the port the porch pirates as well. You know, people oh, stealing yeah. all That's these packages. That we should we should do a whole segment on that. I think if you know we're That's able definitely to definitely something to think set about aside, in the future. Yeah, yeah, set aside an hour where you and I just go through all of the <laughs> kind of. Uh, news regarding that then that would be you know definitely an, a week in apple crime uh you know special edition right there i think it would be good good well let's let's close out the show you want to do that chris yeah sure i mean i just want to say thank you to everyone that's you know listening right now i mean i know we're not on a live show but you know it's something where if you're listening on spotify on soundcloud Google Music, Apple Music, whatever, wherever you are, yeah, yeah, wherever you are. Thank you. And you know what this is a perfect time for, Chris? 
This is a perfect sure, time uh, to men- mention our sponsor. Interestingly enough, our sponsor Anchor makes this show possible because Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, recording, hosting, and distributing your podcast. And guess what? Best of all, it's 100% free and it's ridiculously easy to use. Anchor can now match you with we like. great sponsors. Yes, who want to advertise on your podcast, and that means you can get paid to podcast. Again, paid to podcast right away, and in fact, that's what we're doing right now. Appleosophy uses Anchor to distribute Appleosophy Weekly to your favorite streaming services like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more, and you can visit anchor.fm. That's again, anchor.fm to get started today for free. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Um, this has been an awesome first episode of the year, and um, we're really excited for the things that we have in the pipeline, and we can't wait to tell you more. Yeah, I mean, thank you for having me. Uh, great start to the first podcast of 2021, and yes. I hope that you enjoy having you know your new guests and obviously your new role as uh, kind of the podcast lead. Uh, Living the dream, and, Chris. Yes, I mean... It's it's all good from here. So thank you for listening. And, uh, you know, I'll let Brom do the final words. <laughs> thank you so much, Chris. Again, thank you for tuning in. Uh, we're really excited about some of the guests we have in the pipeline. And again, I just want to reiterate that this is going to be a podcast for everyone. This goes beyond news. And we're going to be talking about how these products are being used in unique and innovative ways from an accessibility perspective. We're going to be talking to creative pros, uh, musicians, artists, graphic designers, all of those people. We're going to have them on the podcast. We're going to talk to them about how these products are being used. And I'm incredibly excited for it. I think it's going to be a great year for Appleosophy Weekly. And I'm glad that I get to be your host officially this year.